So I don't know if you're on Twitter, whether you have a blue tick. Obviously, there's been a lot of confusion about whether you have verified accounts. So now we don't really know when we read tweets on Twitter whether it was the real person saying that or not. It's very confusing. And um, today's passage in John 8 is to do with what people have to say and whether we can believe what they have to say. Now, as many of you know, a couple of weeks back on a Thursday evening, just over two weeks ago, our younger daughter was, lives in Bedford. She was cycling to the railway station to go to work. And she was, a guy went through a red light and knocked her off her bike and took her down and, uh, in, in the dark. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm very grateful, you know, if you have children, you, you want to be there to scoop them up, don't you, at those moments. She was in the, lying in the road in the actual traffic area of a roundabout, having been knocked down. And a, a stranger stopped her car, a stranger called Laura, and she got out of her car and went and rescued my daughter, and I thank God for sending Laura to be a, you know, the kindness of strangers is a wonderful thing, isn't it? So, um, but uh, to, aside from the emotion, how do I know that this historical event really happened? Well, I've seen her and seen lots of bruising on her. I've read her medical report that shows the MRI, MRI scan found a fracture in her foot and a fracture in her skull. And, um, and two people took the number plate of the car. One, of the, one passerby ran off to the, to the corner to watch the car speeding off to take the number plate down. And they've both given their names to the police to give uh, their testimony and, um, of this, what is a crime, isn't it? And in today's passage, as we'll get to read it in a moment, we're going to read about people conflicting with Jesus, about what Jesus was saying about himself, uh, about what he'd come to do and what Jesus says about us human beings. Um, and so it raises a question for us, which is on the next slide, how and why can we accept what Jesus says about himself and about us? So I want us to consider there'll be sort of three sections to the talk. The first section is about the extravagance of how Jesus talked about himself. Secondly, the truthfulness of how Jesus talked about himself. And then thirdly, the challenge of how Jesus talked about us human beings. Now, before I read the passage, just to give a little background, if you haven't been along for some previous Sundays, um, this is, this is a, an event that happened just after one of the Jewish festivals called the Feast of Tabernacles. And, um, and in verse 20a, uh, we're told, that we will read this in the passage, but um, it, it says here, Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Now, these were chests with a little slit in the top. You can just imagine them where people put coins as an offering towards the temple. And uh, we know, uh, we're fairly, fairly certain, those chests were in what was called the court of the women. Um, that doesn't mean that men weren't allowed in that court. It meant that only women could get that far into the temple. It, we don't, don't need to explain all of that. But during the Festival of Tabernacles, in this very court area, Four great lamps used to be lit each night, and then they would like have a praise party every night. They would, um, there would be Levite musicians playing, and it said even pious and holy men would dance around holding burning torches and praise and sing praise to God all night, each night of the Festival of Tabernacles. And so it was in this very court, the day after all this has been happening, night after night, celebrating in this very court in the temple, that Jesus in this court uh, says, verse 12, the first verse of our passage, 
uh, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Such incredible words, aren't they? And remember, these were Jewish people listening to him who knew how Genesis begins. Genesis 1 verse 16, right at the beginning of the Bible, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. So when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, he's making a most extraordinary claim. Planet Earth has only one star that we call the sun. And by its light and its radiation, we can all see, we even exist, everything. Yet the sun is responsible or is essential to life, isn't it? To plants growing, the warmth that we have or the extra warmth if we don't protect ourselves from it. So, um, you know, lots of people say they dislike organized religion, but they really admire Jesus. And the trouble is what Jesus said about himself is so extravagant at times, I think it's difficult to say that. Um, because, I mean, it's a pretty blatant thing. You know, I'm the light of the world. I was 18 years old when I was invited to hear a talk about Christian faith. I had no church background. The speaker, a chap called Mike Frisbee, spoke about how Jesus' statements about himself are so outrageous. And this is one of many of the statements Jesus makes that are really shocking, outrageous. In fact, potentially just genuinely arrogant speech. If you met somebody in the street and they announced this to you, you would probably think they were a bit odd. And in fact, this... The speaker, Mike, set, went out, out on to set out three alternative interpretations of a person who makes such statements. And these are actually, he lifted these from C.S. Lewis, I later discovered. And this is that Jesus is either a lunatic or a liar or, or he is Lord. Because um, I guess it's possible for people who are very narcissistic or in a psychotic state to make extraordinarily grandiose claims about themselves. I have heard such people do such things. But there's no evidence in the Bible that Jesus was a person who was psychotic or narcissistic. So that doesn't seem to explain why Jesus would say such things. And then also, you could be a liar. Jesus could have known that he was not the light of the world, that he was not the son of God. But he could have just been making that as a false claim. But then why would anyone, usually people make a false claim for personal benefit, Whereas the only benefit of making those claims for Jesus would be to be arrested, tried, and crucified. So it would be a, quite a remarkably strange thing to make up. So you're left then with a frightening final option, that Jesus Christ it really is God and Lord. And so these bold statements about himself are not arrogant, nor are they delusions, nor are they lies, but they are the gospel truth, pun intended. So on that very basis, I and billions of others before me and since have decided that, yes, I will follow Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, goodness, Andrew, you were a bit of a pushover, weren't you? I'm not that gullible like you. I, I do have to admit, I am a bit gullible. I, I don't know, do you ever get gullible? I remember somebody coming up to me once and saying, have you heard in the latest edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, they've omitted the word gullible? 
And I said, really? <laughs> oh, <laughs> got me. So let's consider the second section, the truthfulness of how Jesus spoke about himself. So now we're going to read the conversation from verse 13 to 20 that's a record of what, how Jesus talked with the Jewish leaders who challenged him, okay? And uh, you'll notice as we read this, there's a lot of the use of the word true or valid um, about how we can judge whether things are true or false and the validity of testimony. So from verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not true, not valid. And Jesus answered, well, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is true, it is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know, literally, or have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? Jesus replied, you do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And when Jesus says his hour had not yet come in John's gospel, it's referring to the crucifixion. Now, these first century people were not dimwits. They were not pushovers. They knew that what Christ was saying was truly outrageous, and they needed to evaluate the truthfulness of his statements. And so they start questioning him about how many witnesses there are to verify his claim to be the light of the world. Now, we need to understand there are different kinds or categories of truth claims that you can have. And for each kind of truth claim, you have different kinds of verification. Now, in asking about witnesses, I think the, the uh, Jewish leaders here make a category error. It's a bit like them saying, um, well, he's saying he's the light of the world. I can't see any glow. Can you see any glow? I can't, even, I can't see much light coming off him. And then perhaps saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, we have a windowless room over here. Please come inside and we can see if there's even just a glimmer because you just said you're the light of the world. Surely there'll be even a little bit of a glimmer. Right? But we all know that's ridiculous, don't we? It's the wrong test for that claim because it's clear that he was speaking metaphorically. So, um, and so there are different kinds of truth claims. They need verifying in different ways. So, for example, you can have a truth claim about scientific facts. So we could ask, how can a student know that light is both a particle and a wave? Which is the truth. And you can do experiments to show that. Or you get truth claims about historical events. I mean, how do I know Katie was knocked off her bike? Well, I've met her and she told me. There are two witnesses who've given their names to the police. I've seen, I've got a, a copy of the medical report showing the MRI scan and the fractures that she's got. I, I have sufficient evidence to know that this happened. Do you agree? Or take um, this family here if, on the photo. 
this is my great-grandfather and his wife. My, the child, the girl child, is my grandmother. And the boy child is my great-uncle, therefore. So am I getting that right? Yep. So my grandmother's called Doreen. Well, Harold Gregory, you can see there, he's dressed up. He was killed in action on the 24th of April, 1917, at the age of 40. He was a haberdasher in Cheltenham. Elspeth and I have been into the very premises where he had his haberdashery. It's now a coffee shop. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but it's an old building in Cheltenham, and the glass, you know when the glass, in, in the old days, they couldn't make glass truly flat, so it's all sat in there. I thought, I've looked through this same glass he sat in here and looked through. So he was killed in the First World War. My great-uncle, Lynn, so my grandmother's father was killed in the First War. His brother, her brother, Lynn, in the picture there, he was in the RAF in the Second War. He was killed in an air accident. So he died in the Second World War. But it was an accident. It wasn't actually in combat. So how do I know these things? Well, I've, I've looked up the, the, the British Army records. I've been to Arras in northern France and seen... Harold Gregory's name inscribed on the memorial there. I know it's a fact. That's how you verify historical events. And then you get um, truth claims about ethics, you know, judging what is right and wrong. How can a child learn that repeating damaging gossip hurts people and breaks communities? It's a different kind of truth claim, but it's something we learn through experience, either experience that we're explained about or hard, bitter experience. And then you can have, I'm just selecting six here, the next slide, truth about philosophical ideas. That's the kind of truth claim Jesus is making here, I think, when he says, I am the light of the world. Um, that's a philosophical idea. It's verified in a different way again. <laughs> you could ask the question, how can an atheist know that a good and all-powerful God must necessarily prevent all evil events? I'm not going to talk about that, but it's a very good question. How can an atheist know that a good and all-powerful God must necessarily prevent all evil events? It's a good question because that is a key premise of atheism. And I suggest to you it's a false premise. Anyway, won't talk about that this morning. Truth claims about personal experience, judging who is true and false. How can a scientist know that her husband loves her? Or a truth claim about the existence of non-material realities such as love, hope, God. How can a skeptic know that love is a thing? Or that God is a thing? So different tools are needed to establish the truthfulness of different kinds of truth claims, like I'm saying. So historical events are not tested and proved in the same way as scientific events. The scientific method is not appropriate to an historical event. It'd be like using a coronavirus test to determine whether a novel is any good. It's just the wrong thing. So, uh, and that's because scientific truths are, are repeatable things. So we verify them by constructing experiments that you can conduct numerous times and will always give you the same result. But historical events are by definition not repeatable. There can only be one first landing on the moon. 
and you cannot repeat a first date, right? unless you're Drew Barrymore, if you're old enough to. Uh... So if you ask, um, can a scientist believe that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, it's like asking, can a scientist believe that her husband loves her, or can a scientist believe that Taylor Swift's songs are beautiful? The answer in every case is yes, of course, a scientist can believe all those things. Some of those beliefs might be wrong, but some of them might be right, but they're not verified by scientific uh, methodology. Great though scientific methodology is, and it was invented by people who loved God and followed Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, whereas something like boiling water, there's a slide here of a pan of boiling water, as long as the air pressure is the same, boiling, water will boil at 100 degrees Celsius every time you do it without fail. It's a repeatable, verifiable, scientific event. So um, multiplicity of, in, of witnesses is an important way of verifying historical events, like the evidence I have that my great-grandfather died uh, in Flanders and was killed in action, or other things like that. And at its heart, Christianity is an announcement of events, not of ideas. Although this is an idea that Jesus announces, I am the light of the world, it's grounded in the fact that he lived, that he died, that he was raised again to life and says he's going to come back. And we have powerful evidence for the events that are described there that are in our past. So um, that's really helpful. And that's why Jesus says in John 18, 16 to uh, uh, 18, what he says here, that he, you know, my decisions are true, my judgments are true. He is saying, I speak what is true. And so we are all invited, every single human being who looks in the scripture has to evaluate, can I believe these claims that Jesus makes? And we're invited as we share faith with others to encourage others that they can believe these things. And so uh, the Apostle Peter in his letter says to us, you know, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect and has some other advice about how we do that, which is very important advice. So what are some of the reasons for believing that there is a God? Has science disproved God? Because you know that the people Jesus was speaking to all did believe there was a God, but there's a substantial minority of people in our own world, who, uh, in the Western world at least, who dispute whether there is a God. Has science disproved God? Um, so some misguided people used to speak about the God of the gaps. In other words, anything that science couldn't explain, well, that was God. But the trouble with that is a completely failed strategy because as science discovers more things, the gap got smaller and smaller until you say, oh dear, there's no gap left, so no God. You'd follow the logic. Um, but um, my friend Adrian Vandenbroek, an apologist, writes this. Many things that at one time were attributed to the actions of the gods have now been shown to be explicable in terms of natural processes. And yes, that is true. But it'd be wrong to say, oh, we don't need God, there's no gap left, because there are clearly many things, many important things that are outside the scope of scientific explanation. Sir Peter Brian Medawar was a Brazilian-British biologist and writer whose work on graft rejection and the discovery of acquired immune tolerance was fundamental to the medical practice of tissue and organ transplants. He's regarded as the father of transplantation for the work he did. And he wrote this, 
the existence of a limit to science is made clear by, by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions like, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? So science hasn't disproved God or rendered him unnecessary. In fact, there are dozens of reasons to point to the existence of God and certainly to throw doubt on atheism. So for example, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga created a list and you can find a lot of great arguments in like Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, or a slightly older one, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And they go through quite a few of these things. I'm just gonna pick on one, right, which is the fine tuning of the universe. Now I know that amongst us there'll be people, Christians who take different positions on the origin uh, of the universe. Some would be young earth creationists and others would accept or would be believers in sort of theistic evolution, which is probably where this argument uh, comes through. So just suck that up, is that okay? It's a, second, it's a second order for us. I think it's a second order issue for us in the church here. We don't require one or the other position. I'm just venturing this, looking at the other leaders. Am I okay saying that? <laughs> but, you know, Keller writes, for organic life to exist, the fundamental regularities and constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of the weak and strong nuclear forces, must all have values that together fall into an extremely narrow range. The probability of this perfect calibration happening by chance is so tiny as to be statistically negligible. And then um, it's quoting Rebecca McLaughlin, who's uh, quoting from Martin Rees, who says this, cosmologists have isolated key numbers that are fundamental to the physical universe. Some are extremely large, for example, one they call N, which has got so many zeros in it, I can't see how many that is. It's like Okay, that measures the strength of the electrical forces that hold atoms together, divided by the force of gravity between them. Others are extremely small, like Q, like at 0.00001, which represents the ratio between two fundamental energies. And you can read more, you can buy this guy's book. Um, Cambridge professor and world-class astronomer Martin Rees explained in his book just six numbers, the deep forces that shape the universe, that if any of these numbers were even fractionally different, there would be no stars, no Earth, and no life. Okay, Rees is not a Christian, but a, a scientist who is a Christian, Francis Collins, who led the Human Genome Project, grew up in a secular home but became a Christian as an adult, he, he describes the same problem. Um, he says, when you look from the perspective of, of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are about 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Now, we, it, we all have to explain how that happened. And uh, uh, Martin Rees, who is not a Christian, he said there are three options. We just totally lucked out, right? Two, there is a God, 
or three, the option he chooses, which is widely taken up by atheists and scientists, is that actually there's a multiverse, which has been a rich, rich idea for sci-fi storylines, hasn't it? I mean, multiverse now has crept into every superhero movie virtually. And that's the idea that there are simply billions and billions of billions of universes, most of which didn't produce anything much at all, and we are the lucky universe that produced matter and then life. And that's what is believed, because if you don't want to believe in God, that's what you are left with. But I think that takes about as much faith as believing in God. So, but I leave that with you. So, and you know, in John 8, 14, it's clear Jesus thinks there's a purpose in the universe. And I think there's a purpose in the universe. And I think when we say that there is simply no purpose in the universe, we make life very, very cold and empty. And so he says, I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. Friends, you can know where you come from and you can know where you are going. And that is a very wonderful thing. So I think these things, um, none of them are absolute proof that God exists, but when you look at the whole list of them, if you read any of these books, I think it's compelling. I find it deeply reassuring. I think, yeah, I really think there is a God. It both bolsters my faith. And uh, so... Um, the next thing I want to look at is the cha challenge of how Jesus talked about us human beings. And uh, so we read the rest of today's passage, which starts at verse 21. Um, let uh, me warn you, you might get a bit offended. Jesus is a bit in people's face here, okay? You ready? Now I've done that, you won't be so annoyed. Verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you'll look for me. And you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that what he says? Where I go, you cannot come? Closer to the truth than they thought. And he didn't kill himself, but he certainly was going to die. Anyway, verse 23. But he continued, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. They could hear this speech, it's so arrogant. I mean, who is any person to declare such words to us? And Jesus replies, well, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. He says, I've been telling you this over and over. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, I tell the world. Verse 27, they did not understand what he was telling them about. Sorry, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you'll know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. When you have lifted up the son of man, the son of man was the way Jesus spoke about himself. And when you have lifted up, John uses this phrase three times, it means the crucifixion. But it's got a double meaning because it also means when we've exalted Jesus. So it's both when we've exalted him and when we've crucified him, we will see. Verse 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many believed in him. Who are you? They asked Jesus in verse 25. Perhaps the most important question any of us can ask of or about Jesus and um, 
you know, it's a contested question. It's not a neutral question. We don't come to things neutrally. We are in contested space. Because if the, that claim is true, then there are shocking implications for how I live my life. That was the biggest obstacle to me becoming a Christian, was I realized that God would have to start, his opinion would have to start affecting my behavior. And I was very reluctant about taking that step. I didn't want anybody having else affecting my behavior. I wanted to be free to do what I wanted to do. And it was an obstacle. Could I make that step? But by God's grace, I was able to make that step. God can give you the grace to make that step as well. And it was the best choice I ever made. Um, so, but it is contested. There's a philosopher called Thomas Nagel who is an atheist, a very honest atheist actually, and he wrote a book, The Last Word. Um, Tim Keller quotes from this guy. Uh, he admits that he can't come to the question of God in anything like a detached way. He confesses he has a fear of religion. He doubts that anyone can actually think about whether there's a God in a neutral way. And I believe that's true. And that's why Jesus is so direct with these people. You're going to die in your sins. There's an issue. We are, we're biased. We have, a, we have skin in the game. right? We, we have somebody in the fight here. And we are fighting with God about things. So here's a quote from this philosopher, Thomas Nagel. I'm talking of the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. The quote goes on. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I'm curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. Anyone who, whatever his actual belief about the matter, doesn't particularly want, particularly want either one of the answers to be correct. We need help because actually I didn't want there to be a God like the God of the Bible to be true. Because I didn't want anybody to be a Lord. I didn't want to have to follow anyone. But this God says, follow me. He says, I am the way, come my way. I didn't want that. It's contested space. Now you might say, well, Jesus is judging. Well, if you actually go back to John 3, there's three slides here, we'll skip over them. But he said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I've come to save the world. But if you reject me, you're kind of condemning yourself. So let's... Let's, God, may God help us all to come to the light today. And you might say, oh, I've been a Christian years, Andrew, like you. Well, I still need to come to the light, don't you? I still need to let his light come into my life because I still resist him. And so um, Jesus says, you know, verse 24, I think there's a slide for this. I, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Keep believing this. Now, Keller tells a story that, you know, the Russians got into space before the Americans, which really annoyed the Americans, right? We're talking the late 1950s. Um, I was a child that back then. And apparently one of these cosmonauts returned from space and reported that he had not found God when he'd orbited the Earth, right? <laughs> you know, sort of thing. Atheist nation making that claim. And C.S. Lewis, who only died in 1963, he responded like this. He said, it's like saying that Hamlet went up into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. 
right? It's, yeah, you think about it. It's a crazy idea because a creator God is clearly not an object within our universe like hydrogen or oxygen or an island off the Northumberland coast. He's, he's outside it. He inhabits it, but he is beyond it. And uh, Lewis also wrote that he believes in God in the same way that he believes the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Right? He believes the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. There was an eclipse of the sun recently. Did you, did you hear about it in the news? But they always give a warning, don't they? Don't look at the sun. Do you remember? Yep, not directly. Anyway, you can, if you have the right equipment, it's safe to do. But you should never look directly at the sun because it would burn your retina. But we are living in the light of Christ when we read the scripture, when we look at the way he's made our world. And that is a wonderful thing. So the path to life is with and through Jesus. And it's in his death and resurrection that we find the central revelation of who he is and as we believe in him we will know that he is the one so remember Jesus said I am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life let's, let's come and follow him today I want to invite you to stand the band to come up and I don't know maybe there's people here today and you've never you've considered Christianity you've not been so sure about it Maybe you'd like to start investigating. Well, actually, he's given a pretty reasonable reason why God exists. And you'd like to look into that more. Maybe you're persuaded. For the first time, you actually are just thinking, wow, maybe there is a God. Maybe I could talk to him. It's what happened to me on the 30th of March, 1976. And you could take that step today of starting to talk to God. You could come and speak to me or Katie and we could give you a suggestion how to start a relationship with God through Jesus. It's very simple. You can talk to him. And you could start to say to him, okay, I'm going to try following you. That's what I did. I said I was going to follow him for three weeks and see how it went. That's, that's how I started. But, you know, God takes us where we are. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to be, you know, those people who sometimes wind down directions and ask you how to get somewhere, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, um, um, well, you can't start from here. You know, something. No, you can always start from here. So come and talk to Katie and me afterwards if you'd like any help in that. And in the meanwhile, uh, for all of us who are Christians, Jesus said to us in another gospel, you are the light of the world. So receive that calling. Go and shine your light this week. In Jesus' name, amen.